We're going to, I'll do the scripture reading, uh, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and it is um, a place in scripture, it's, I think it's the day of Pentecost, if you read through it, it's when the Holy Spirit came, and it, it follows, you know, within the week or two weeks of Pentecost, where, um, I got to find the scripture first, uh, where, um, where the Holy Spirit has just taken over, and this is in Jerusalem, um, it's after Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, day 40, 40, 50 days later, Holy Spirit comes and crazy stuff starts to happen. Crazy good stuff. All right. So this is what the, um, the disciples, now the apostles are, are experiencing. And what I want you to do is, is think of this in terms of being a PR person. Like, how does this look for the nascent faith, for Christianity? How does this look for them? Like, if you're somebody in Jerusalem who's not part of this thing, read, read what's going on here and, and think, Think what you would think of this stuff that's happening, all right? So let's read God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to every, anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, so think about it. When Jesus ascended, there might have been 30 people who were his followers. You know, we know there are 11 disciples soon to become apostles, and a lot of the women who were with him and some other people, we're not sure, but probably about 30. Jump forward 300 years, less than 300 years, and there are 3 million believers in the world. That's church growth, right? We don't see that growth these days much. Sometimes in Africa stuff happens. Sometimes in South America, but definitely not in our country. But from a PR perspective, would you agree? You're looking at this stuff going on in Jerusalem. You're going, this is it. This is God's kingdom. Now, I want to join it. It was very winsome. Wouldn't you agree with that? This is winsome stuff, right? People getting healed. People um, being baptized. People sharing their goods with each other. It's crazy, and then, you know, 325 years, 325 A.D., roughly, the Edict of Milan came, where Rome decided to say, okay, this Christianity thing, let's, let's, let's jump on the train. And so they sort of took charge. Uh, it's when the popes started, and church growth just slowed and plateaued. And it did grow. But the explosive growth was before that, when Christianity was still considered subversive. It was not the main culture, but then it became part of the culture. So let's go farther into the future to the present day. How is the, are Christians viewed today by people who, aren't, who are outside, by people who aren't Christian? Well, this is um, a study that was done by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons, and they put it in the book, Unchristian. That was the name of the book. So you can see where they're coming from. Now, this is a little bit dated, 
And there should be a picture of the book. So, oh, there it is. Oh, I see. Okay, that's weird. Um, um, it's a book that was, was uh, done by the Barna Group. If you're familiar with the Barna Group, they're a Christian um, statistical group that does research. And, um, and this is, it's a little dated. This is, uh, came out in 2007, and I actually found this book in uh, the yard sale, in the, you know, the, how the books are in the, the lobby there. And I, it was a dollar. It was awesome. And it really showed some insight into how we are viewed as a culture. Now, I'm not going to say everything in this survey is true of everyone, right? But this is our perception. Remember how in Acts 2 it says, the Christians enjoyed the favor of all? It's not so much true now. Here are the six things that, um, that the Barna group, that uh, Kinnaman and Lyons found, the way we're viewed. And this is in, in the United States. Uh, I, I do want to mention the very first... Um, a sentence in this book is, Christianity has an image problem. And I think if you watch television, listen to the news, you'll see that's true. There are certain aspects of our culture that are hostile to us because of the, these things they perceive. And I, I believe this too. I work among secular colleagues. These are wonderful human beings, very progressive in their outlook. They love kids. They teach kids with, with their whole heart. They love compassion and justice. One of my friends, uh, I was on the, the team that hired her, and we asked her, why do you want to teach? And she said, because I believe in social justice. And I thought, let's hire this girl. You know, she cares about kids. She cares about justice. But what does she think of Christianity? Well, this is, this is the survey, and uh, you can see how are we viewed today. The first one is we're known for being hypocritical, that our lives, the way we live, don't match what we say. And that's a common thing, that Christians are hypocrites. That's very commonly viewed. Second thing is that we are only concerned about converting people. Right? We're only concerned about people coming into the kingdom, and then we just let them alone. And, and, and they're viewed, sometimes they think Christians view, you know, a, 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 a potential convert as that's it. They're not a person. You're just my goal. I just want to convert you, then I'm done. Now, it's not true for most of us, but this is how we're viewed. Thirdly, anti-homosexual. Well, this is a little tricky because the scriptures teach that, you know, homosexuality as a way of life is sin. Uh, but Jesus also said, we love our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us. We shouldn't be known for what we're against. We should be known for what we're for. That's a controversial one, but, but Jesus said, love, they'll know you're my followers by your love, by the fact that you love people. We shouldn't be known for being anti-anything, anti-any person, I should say. And that's not to say that homosexuality is right, because the Bible clearly says it's not. The fourth one is that we tend to stay in our little Christian bubble. We tend to stay right where we are, and we don't go outside, and we sort of have this us against them. I see that. Fifthly, that we are too political, and there's nothing wrong with political necessarily until you start demonizing a segment of society. We are known as people who demonize people who don't agree with us, people who don't look like us, people who don't work at the same place or wear the same clothes or speak the same language. This is how we are known. Sixthly, that we hate the sinner. You know, there, there's a saying that we, we hate the sin but love the sinner, but we're not known for that. 
We're known for hating the sinner. Now, I don't know if you agree with this. This is a survey that was done, you know, 14 years ago. But I see this among my friends who are not believers. I see this kind of view. I see it on TV and in movies, that Christians are usually considered ignorant and uh, behind the times and old school. This is the society we live in. This is how we're viewed. We don't have the favor of all like the early church did. So where's the disconnect? What happened? We're supposed to be known by our love for one another. Something's wrong. Here's the problem. You know, if we think of our faith as a peach, right? I mean, this is not a great analogy because the part of peach that is delicious is the outside, but we're going to pretend that's not true. Now, some of you don't like peaches because of the hair, I guess, but we're going to pretend the pit in the middle is the solid thing. That, that it's, it's, the, it's where the life force is, right? If you take a peach and lay it on the ground and it dies and it rots, the thing that's left still has the life force in it, right? That's the, that's the important part of the peach in a sense, right? Not if you're hungry, but, you know, if you're a farmer. We've we got to think of all the cultural stuff It's on the outside of our faith and tear it away to look at what is our faith really? What what are the essential things of our faith? The things that we would die for. The things that we need to share with people who don't know Jesus. Not the cultural trappings. We've got to tear those away. I first got to to, to really think this through uh, my first trip to Ukraine in 1995 with this church. Um, Tom Patterson was our uh, youth pastor in, in that day. And he had been involved with a group, uh, Eastern European Bible Mission, who went and after the, the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, this group brought Christians to train churches how to work. And, and we, we taught them how we work with kids. And I had to really think of, well, you know, in our youth group, we have all kinds of resources. Like, we just go down to the store and buy stuff. But in Ukraine, they don't have that. I mean, they're still at bread lines. So how do we minister there? And I had to really strip away all the, the, the way we do youth ministry, strip, strip that stuff away to look at what is it about youth? What do youth need to know about Jesus? What do they need to know? And this is really what missionaries do when they go into the field. They have to realize, I was raised in this culture. My brain, in a sense, is wired to be an American citizen. All my life, I'm used to having stuff and having a TV and having a car, and that's not part of my faith, right? We come to church on Sunday, and we tend to dress up. Is that part of my faith? Go to Irinjaya, where they go to church, and they wear almost nothing. So, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? We've got we to gotta be able to figure out what is the, the solid part of our faith. And that's where this phrase, sine qua non, comes from. Um, Actually, I've jumped ahead a little bit, so I, and I've got to be careful here. Um, but you're following me, I see. Um, so there's this great book called the, the Celtic Way of Evangelism. And he talks about the way Ireland was evangelized. Because early, like 400 AD, the Roman church went in there and they did their typical thing. And I'm, I don't, I don't want to harsh on my friends in the Roman Catholic Church. But um, their, their missionary way was to build a, a, a you know, rectangular building. To the, the priest comes in robes and with the cool hats, and they have a, some kind of piano or organ. I don't think the piano was invented yet, so it was some kind of musical thing that they did in Rome and in Europe. And then, you know, you know the story of St. Patrick. He was actually in England. He's an Englishman who was kidnapped by slave traders 
and he was sold as a slave in Ireland, and he lived there, he worked there as a slave for, for decades, and then he was taken out of that, he, he escaped back to England, and he said, those Irish people need Jesus, and he, he went to seminary, but he came back to Ireland as an Irish person who knew the culture. He knew their love for things in threes. He knew their love for the shamrock, for the color green, for intricate symbols. And he used that to tell them about Jesus. He had stripped away the peach, the Roman peach, and he got to the core of what the gospel was. That's what we need to do. Because we live in a country that is no longer considered by most a Christian country, unless we stay in our little Christian bubble. But we're not called to stay in the bubble, right? We're called to make disciples of Americans? No. Make disciples of Europe? No. What is it? Make disciples of all ethne, all nations. And that word can be, can be translated tribes. Make disciples of your neighbors that are different from you or the same from you. People down the street, people in your community, people at your work were called by Jesus to make disciples. But we can't represent Jesus if we're representing the outside of the peach, if we're representing all those cultural biases we have. So I want to take a, take a look at the mirror. You know, look at ourselves today. What are the things we think, believe, and do as Christians here that are reflections of our culture? not our faith. And I'm not really, really going to answer that question. That's something we all need to think about. What are the barriers we put in people's way to coming to Jesus that have nothing to do with Jesus? So um, here's, here's this idea I've had, and I, I, I've shared this before. Um, my, my middle daughter and I were driving to, uh, what's the park? Not Disneyland, but uh, the park, uh, you know, Magic Mountain thing. That's my wife. Um, and we were driving there early in near Visalia on this four-lane road, two going each direction. I've told this story before. And I'm driving along, and there's this raven, like, flying the same direction. And I'm like, oh, this could be bad. So I moved to the next lane. He changes lane. This is a true story. And I'm like, oh, wow. And he's getting closer and closer, and he changes lane and poops right on our windshield. Now, I mean, this is the opening of a movie, isn't it? I mean, you could see it, right? Um, so... The thing is that, you know, I, I, I started fantasizing what story I could make out of this. And the idea was th- this raven is like a spy for some other planet that they send. Ra- and, you know, ravens have proliferated. I mean, I don't remember that many ravens when I was a kid, but now they're all over. And maybe ravens are like taking notes on us. And so this guy was like marking my card, you know, because he can't fly as fast, but he was, you know, going to radio ahead to the next person to watch what I was doing. I don't know. So, so imagine for a moment that there was a raven assigned to you. And that raven is taking notes, however they do. I mean, they only have two feet. I don't know how they do it, but they're, they're taking notes on your life. They're watching everything you do. Would they be able to say that person loves and follows Jesus? I mean, think about that for a second. Think of what you, your, your routine in the morning and the way you talk to your, your family, the people you live with, the way you deal with people at work, the way you talk to the person at the grocery store. Would they be able to say, without a doubt, that person is different. That person, I'm seeing the pit in their life. I'm seeing Jesus. Because that's what we want to get to, isn't it? We want to get to be known for the love we have for people, not these other things that don't really matter. So 
It's important because we do represent God whether we know it or not. People should see Jesus in us. So first to see what the essentials are, where are we going to go? We're going to go to Scripture. Because it defines who we are. It's God saying, this is who you are. This is who I want you to be. And so we can be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, that I knew nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's how we have to live our lives. And I know for me, that's a big switch to being among unbelievers and knowing, resolving to know nothing while we're with them except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is that a lofty goal? Yeah. Are you following me? I'm not seeing heads shaking, right? We got to follow Jesus and we got to represent Jesus. But as I said, our actual verse is from John 17. Um, And um, the context of this is, um, this is um, uh, right when Jesus' life is about to change. He's been doing this ministry for probably three years. He's had the Passover. He's taught a lot about the Holy Spirit in John 15 and 16. And now John 17, he's praying to his father. And so this is a key passage in Jesus' life. And he says this. And he's praying to his father, but his disciples are there listening. And this, father, is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay, think about what that's saying. This is eternal life. Okay, we, we, we talk about eternal life like it's some other, you know, some, something you sign up for, say, yeah, I want that. What do I have to do? I have to say this? Okay, I'll say it. But in this passage, it says, this is eternal life. This is the kind of life that is eternal. It starts now. It's knowing God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. It's knowing him. Right? And this is, in, in the original, uh, the, the verb that they may know you is called a subjunctive mood, which means it's the mood of condition, like it might happen. But it doesn't have to happen. Right? It's not saying they will know you or they shall know you. It's saying that they may know you. Eternal life isn't just fire insurance and going to heaven when you're dead. That's part of it. But it's about having a living, loving, wrestling, dancing relationship with God through Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what this is saying to us. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Think about going, go back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, they got to walk with God in the cool evening breeze. When God created us, he wants relationship. That's what it's about. He doesn't just want minions to do his will. He can do anything. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to talk to you in the garden in the evening. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God wants to hang with you. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. And the one true God, I I love that phrase because... In, in the Old Testament, if you look at the word L-O-R-D, it's capitalized. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which actually is the one who is. I am that I am. So all these other gods in, around Israel had their own names, but the God of Israel was Yahweh, the God who is the real one, the one true God. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is God incarnate. God made flesh, 
and dwelt among us. So this knowing God, this eternal life, is this relationship with God through his son Jesus. And he just finished teaching on the Holy Spirit that Jesus, that the Father was going to send after Jesus leaves. So the Trinity is right there. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We have a relationship with him. And Jesus' job is to reveal God's heart to us. Because the heart I had growing up in this, in this fabulous culture is not the heart of God. I had to protect myself when I was vulnerable because I would be made fun of by my siblings. I had to keep my stuff close because they would take it, right? I mean, that's how we're wired. We're wired to see this world as a dangerous place. We're not wired to be generous like God, to love the unlovely like God. And how do we find that? By knowing God. So we need to figure out what this is. What does it mean to know God? As I was preparing this for yesterday, oh, sorry, I need to talk about sine qua non. Sine qua non is a Greek phrase that means that without which. Okay, it's used in philosophy and other places to mean the essential thing. Right? So if you have a mousetrap, what are the essential parts of a mousetrap? Right? We have to have some kind of board. You have some kind of way to attach the spring. You have to have the spring and then the lever, right? And bait is optional. You can actually catch mice without bait, but bait's useful, right? Does it need to be blue? No, that's not sine qua non. That's not essential. Does it need to have a picture of Mickey Mouse on it? No, right? The essential things are the things you can't... The essential things are the pit, right? You tear away all the cultural trappings of our faith, and you've got this solid core, and that's what we're talking about, right? Well, so what does it mean to know God? Because that is the core. Everything in our faith flows from this relationship with God. Everything does. Well, I found an old friend yesterday. His name was J.I. Packer. It's a book that I read probably in the 70s. This book came out in 73. It's a book called Knowing God. Anybody read it? Maybe a few of you. Okay, it was huge. InterVarsity Press. Um, it was a fantastic book that really brought this idea out. And there's a whole chapter on John 17, 3, what it means to know God. And I want to share his outline because he's way smarter than I am. He knows the Bible way better. He said these three things about it. He said, knowing God, first of all, is personal dealing, that you're dealing with him personally, that it's not through a priest. It's not through your pastor. It's personal. It's with you. Second thing he said, and we'll go through these a little bit slower, is it's personal involvement that you're actually interacting with the Holy God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the third thing is that um, it's a matter of grace. That it doesn't come from us. It comes from him. We don't, we're not entitled to know God. But God reveals himself to us through Jesus. It's an act of grace. We don't deserve it, but we get it. All right, so let's look at the first one, personal dealing. Um, and this is a quote from his book. Um, he says, Knowing God is more than knowing about him. It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you. And Packer talks about what if, and this is, you know, he's a Brit. He was, uh, he was in uh, a Trinity, uh, Trinity College in Bristol. And then he moved over to uh, Regent in uh, Vancouver. Um, he says, like, in the World War, imagine, I mean, Winston Churchill was the guy in England who was fighting the Nazis. He was brash, he was loud, smoked cigars, didn't treat people nice, but he knew what he was doing. He was a rock star in England in World War II. He's a guy, I think, who came up with 
keep calm and carry on, wherever that, that phrase is, right? To, to just get the, the English people to, to just keep going. And imagine, Packer says, imagine he sees you on the street and says, hey, you, come here. How would you feel? You go, oh my gosh, Winston Churchill. Oh. Would you come into my, the war room and help me out? Yes, of course, sir, I will. I mean, what if Winston Churchill called you out and said, I want to know you. I want you to work for me. I want to partner with you to beat the Nazis. What if Winston Churchill did that? Well, oh my gosh, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? How different is that from God calling my name, knowing how many hairs are still left on my head, right? Knowing all my problems intimately. God knows that, and he wants me to be on his team. How much more is that crazy amazing than Winston Churchill knowing you? That's what it means that God is personally dealing with you. Second thing, personal involvement, has to do with your mind and your will and your emotion. Packer says this, to get to know another person, and he's speaking of just you know, relationships, to get to know another person, you have to commit yourself to his company and interests and be ready to identify yourself with his concerns. So is that what we're doing? Are we getting to know God through scripture, through prayer? Have we committed ourselves to his company? Like when we're by ourselves, and this is, you know, I struggle with Netflix, I do. How often do I just go and find a place and talk to God? It's, it's better than it used to be for sure, but that's not saying much. How committed are we to God's company and his interests? And how ready are we to identify ourselves with his concerns? You know, um, this relationship is an emotional one. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten more emotional, don't know. Um, but here's some scriptures that talk about that. One is um, Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You experience God, right? And I've had some experiences in my life that just make me weep. They're just so beautiful. When God is there and you sense his presence, it's like, I want this all the time. I think heaven's going to be that way. Oh my gosh. And it happens too few and far between in my life, and maybe that's normal. Uh, it's, it's emotional, uh, Acts eleven twenty two and 23. And this is talking about Barnabas when he saw what was happening. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived there and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Do the things that bring God joy bring you joy? Do the things that cause God's sorrow bring you sorrow? That's what this relationship and knowing God is all about. Psalm 119, you know, the, lar- the largest psalm there is. Verse 136 says this, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Do you mourn over the, the, the condition of our country, of our world? Of the suffering that's going on? Because God mourns. God is a God who weeps. Jesus wept, just like we do. So it's personal dealing, personal involvement. Thirdly, it's a matter of grace. The initiative is always with God. Galatians 4, 8, and 9 say this. Formerly you did not know God. You were slaves to those who by nature were not gods, are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Now, what I want you to notice is that Paul corrects himself in here, right? He says uh, in the second sentence, but now that you know God, 
or rather are known by God. You see, we feel like we experience this. Well, I chose God. That's what it feels like to us. But actually, scriptures teach that's not the way it is. That's how we think. But God chose us. We are known by God. God knows us. So it's a grace. We have, we're not entitled to this. Wouldn't you agree that, I mean, I, I feel like this is still part of the Off-Roads Discipline sermon series, right? Because the disciplines that we learned, all of them, are, are right along this alley of knowing God, right? The, the quiet times, the, the uh, prayer uh, the prayer disciplines that we do, the giving, the trusting God in things. It's right out of that stuff. But this is eternal life. Knowing God. Having him in your life doing all kinds of stuff. Um, and this is the relationship. This relationship should be the filter of everything we do. Everything we think. Everything we say should be captive to the Holy Spirit. What to expect? Well, we're going to quickly move through this. I'm about done here. Um, yeah, I got less than a page, so yeah, good news. Um, you know, uh, a great place to look when uh, you're, you're thinking, what, what can I expect if I, if I make this choice? If I, if I decide to just focus my life on knowing God? Um, and I like to look to Isaiah 6, because here's a guy who was a prophet chosen by God, and he starts out, um, and he, in, in Isaiah 6, he, he sees God in the temple. And, you know, there's smoke and there's the shaking of the foundation. And he realized he is nothing. He is, he is just absolutely nothing. He falls on his face. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen God. He fall, and that's the natural response. Look through scripture. People who see God, they all do the same thing, fall flat on their face. So the first thing to expect when you have one of these experiences with God is humility. Humility in the reality of God's presence. Second thing is, and if you keep going on the story, an angel, one of these seraphs goes and flies to the, the thing that's holding the fire, takes a coal and burns Isaiah's lips to, clean his, to cleanse his lips. A way of God saying, I forgive you. I know you're unclean and that, but I forgive you. So there's forgiveness and relationship. That's where the relationship with God starts. Because if you look at this holy God, you're just going to want to do this. I can't. But then he forgives you. And you go, oh my gosh, really? And you start this loving relationship. Everything with God is based on love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. And finally, God commissions us. God commissioned us lots of ways. And and the Great Commission, which I've already, this is the third time you're going to hear it, that Jesus said, go into the world, make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded, and I'm going to be with you always. We are commissioned for that. That's what to expect. And I could spend time talking about all the cultural things, the peach part, the the pulpy part, but I'm not going to do that. That's after the Holy Spirit. It's his job to convict me of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what it says in John. But think of this again. What ultimately do our unbelieving friends see in our lives as followers of Jesus? Do they see that we dress up for church, that we wash our car Saturday night? Is that what it means to be a Christian? Do they notice our political affiliation, the things we post? Do they see the way we view people who are the same with us? Are those people that are different with us? Immigrants? The list goes on. That's stuff to think about. Think about how you are presenting Jesus to people who know you're Christians. 
How do you drive? How do you walk through a checkout line at the grocery store? Or do they see the sine qua non of your life, the essential, your relationship with God as you reflect him to them? This living, breathing, wrestling, dancing, love relationship with God through Jesus. That's our focus. That's what eternal life is, and it starts now. It started the day you accepted Christ. So we got to commit to some things. I think I skipped something there, didn't I? It's not in here, that's why. Commit to two things, right? Is that there? Yeah. So we got to commit to spending time with God, right? Commit to studying community. That's what, Acts, that's what they did in Acts 2, right? They, they listened to the apostles' teaching, which is really the Gospels and, and the, new, the whole New Testament. You got to commit to it. I have to commit to it. If you are in a Bible study group, awesome. Talk about this stuff. Talk about how your relationship with God is primary. Do that this week, right? If you're a leader, take a note. And if you're not in a Bible study group, how are you going to do this? This isn't for the timid. It's not something we can do on our own. And scripture says that. So I'm going to read um, Psalm, or rather Acts chapter 2 again. Just, just go through it and listen to what it's saying. Study this this week. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love coming to church when there are baptisms. It's like my favorite thing. We need to have more baptisms. People need to know Jesus and know how much he loves them, and they're going to know that through the way we live our lives. All that flows from our knowing God. Amen? For you 
Just it. 